Floosh? Flushy. Flush? Oh, it's actually Flushy. It's Flushy. Is that French or German or? Border just... of France and Germany, Alsace. Okay, yeah, yeah. So it, it could actually change a little bit depending on what side. And it actually does around the country. Okay, so, so. You're, you're from the French side of, of Alsace, Lorraine. Um, cool. So you are the executive director at Moda. And how did you get there? Where did you start in your life as a young person? And how did you find your way into ex- being a director here? You start, you, your biography, it's a big chunk from your eyes, talks about um, you were in Rome for 15 years at, with the University of Dallas. I was. I, um, I grew up in a small town in Texas, mm-hmm. uh, 1,500 people, all of whom are related to me. <laughs> so they all know how to say your name there? They do know, they do know how to say my name there. Uh-huh. Um, many of them have my name there. Yeah. <laughs> and then I studied art history at Trinity University in San Antonio. Okay. And then went on to study art history and classical archaeology at the University of Illinois. Yeah. And as a PhD candidate writing my dissertation, I moved to Rome, Italy. I was doing a dissertation about Etruscan urbanization. I went there to do research, finished my dissertation, and was lucky to get a job teaching on the University of Dallas Rome campus, where I taught for 13 years and was for several years the assistant academic dean there. Yeah. And it was a great run in Italy. Um, I, I don't know why anyone leaves Italy except that what is often said about Italy, that there's not a lot of future in the past, is true. Yeah. And so I decided at some point that even though it would be wonderful to stay in Italy forever, I would probably be doing the same thing for the rest of my life. And that at some point, I might become dissatisfied and want to do something else. Right. So I began... Um, looking for opportunities and landed at Moda as the associate director in the summer of 2010. Yeah, I think the Italian culture is very stylish, very strong design, but dynamic probably isn't a word that you would use to describe it. I would use dynamic to describe Italian culture in day-to-day life, but not in terms of institutions. Not institutions (laughs) and politics. So what drew you you to art history in, in that move? Did you start off in the art or the history side or... I'm a terrible artist. Um, so I started off in the history side, I guess. I, I don't know for sure. I have very strong memories as a kid of going to museums with okay. my mom and particularly of going to see a Pompeii exhibition that toured the country in, say, the early, mid-'70s, something like that. Right. And had plaster casts of the, of the um, people who died at Pompeii. So those are really vivid memories I have in museums and and looking at objects and art. Uh, And so I guess I just connected somehow. And then when I went to Trinity, the first class on my first day as a freshman was my art history class. And I walked out and said, that's it. I'm going to be an art history major. So it just hit you? Was it a a great professor or just something about those objects and the stories behind them? It was a remarkable professor in part. But I also think, think art history for me satisfies... A desire to know a lot of things. I'm probably a browser of information. And while I like to be an expert on things, we all do, I also like to go off into territory that's not my own. So if you're studying a painting or a sculpture or an artifact that comes out of the ground, you're thinking about economics and religion and history and 
a lot of different things, technique, lots right. of different things. So it gives me the opportunity to to really paint a broad picture around an object, and I, I love that. Yeah, I think that's one of the really interesting things about um, older art, artifacts when you go and you visit them. Like if you go to the Louvre just to bougie this up or something and you see the object, there's a whole culture around that that you can kind of, that's also it's almost as opaque as the art object, like which you don't really necessarily get when you look at contemporary art. That right, it's harder anyway. It's hard. Well, it's there. It's still taking just, form. Yeah, it's it's there. It's just you're so enmeshed in that culture that you kind of don't see the boundaries. Right. Yeah. So there's there. I can see there's some really interesting stories there. Um, and then you you dropped a line about Etruscan urbanism, which yeah. I, a lot of people don't realize. What we consider Roman is actually Etruscan, and the Romans. Yeah, exactly. The first culture they conquered and, and appropriated. Yeah, um, the Etruscans lived on the Italian peninsula for hundreds and actually thousands of years prior to being conquered by the Romans. And in fact, a lot of what the Romans knew about building cities, they learned from the Etruscans. The Greeks, of course, contributed to their knowledge as well. But the Etruscans were building really amazing, sophisticated cities with drainage and streets and, you know, what we would think of as as looking like a Greek or Roman city. Um, as the Greeks were figuring it out and before the Romans ever really thought it up. Yeah, and it, um, Doug Allen, who was a professor at George Tech who passed away recently, mm-hmm. speaks a lot about Rome and kind of the art of Rome is city building, where maybe it's Greek, it's more buildings, although obviously the Greeks did a lot of thought into that. Yeah. And so there's a lot of overlay. Were the Etruscans into the Cardo and the Decumanus and the North, which is the North Street, South Street? And they were in, uh, as they became more and more exposed to the Greeks, they, they adopted the orthogonal street plan. So you mm. do see it um, in some Etruscan civilization, in some Etruscan, sorry, cities, not, not in all of them. Right. And we should pay homage to Doug. He'll, he'll be much missed here. He will be much missed. I think there was always that, um, he was just an incredibly knowledgeable kind of polymath, which is a, word that's been thrown around, kind of jack of all trades. It knows a lot of things and knew how to put things together in interesting ways. Never a dull conversation. Never a dull conversation (laughs) at all. Um, So so you're in Rome, which is kind of this, the Renaissance was described as kind of a shipwreck that people were living in. If you're in Rome, it really feels that way. Like where, um, and I did did the study abroad Italian program with Uh Doug, so he does a walk around the corner from your hotel where there's a strangely curved building. Uh, the Theater of Pompey. The Theater of Pompey. You're like, so that's now an apartment building that they just filled in. And then he's like, so right over here is actually where Caesar was killed because <laughs> they were actually renovating the Senate. Right. So anyway, it is this very weird kind of almost Disney-like mouse city of people living in these ruins for dead generations. I never thought of it as Disney-like, honestly, because it's it's real life. <laughs> it's dirty and gritty. Yeah, it's very dirty and gritty. I guess it's not uh, Disney-like. I guess it's that kind of. I guess I mean that idea in cartoons of they always they'll do that. Like, what if there was a city made by mice and they live in shoes? And oh, stuff right, like right, that. right. No, Rome is definitely dirty and gritty. <laughs> well, I think one of the amazingly stimulating things about living in Rome is that it takes a lot of effort just to learn your way around in the 21st century because of the way the streets twist and turn and the way the city grew over time. But once you master that, there are so many other cities to master, um, the ones that are below the ground, so that you're always walking in another place. It just happens to be covered up, the ones that have disappeared. So that, to me, living in Rome was just like the most amazing intellectual puzzle that never ended because every time you learned one piece, 
it opened up seven more things that you wanted to investigate and learn about just because the city is so incredibly complex on a horizontal and a vertical level. Right, right. And so, I mean, even if you're looking at um, the forum and you go there, there's there's things there that are hundreds of years apart that have been... Yeah. And you're, so you're, you're like, well, this doesn't... What the... And you're like, well, no, they built the fa- this on the foundation of another thing and trying to... Yeah, and so many things that are gone. Yeah, so. and that just continues right up to today where... Yeah, there's Absolutely. this apartment building that's been built on yada, 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 yada. No, it's awesome. So, and you were, um, I did look at your biography while on the way over. And uh, so you were working for the University of Dallas, but then you set up, um, co-founded it said, the Design and Culture in Rome, which was, uh, sounded like it was cultural seminars, but out in the city. Yeah, I, I did a couple of things. I taught for the University of Dallas. I also excavated on the Palatine Hill for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then, yes, with Susan Sanders, I co-founded the Institute of Design and Culture in Rome. Mm-hmm. And it was essentially college-level courses right. taught by faculty members um, of the Institute to visitors to Rome who wanted much more than a a regular tourist experience, who wanted to really delve into a subject or a place or a topic in depth Mm -hmm. over the course of either, it could be as short as two hours, it could be a full day, and we had people who came and took weeks worth of courses with us. Right, so you really want to, you don't want to do the tourist blow by, you really want to get like the nitty gritty of of these things interconnected. Like do you, if you really want to learn why Bernini is amazing, let's spend a whole day. Yeah, and let's learn a lot of geometry. Right. Yeah. So. It's Bermini or is it Bormi? Those two Bormini guys that hated each other. Yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> Their names are so close. Um, and that was fun. We had really amazing clients. Um, they were smart. They brought so much to the table. Part of the fun, as someone who taught traditionally in a classroom, part of the fun of teaching for the Institute, for me, was that the our clients brought so much knowledge so i remember one day i was spent in the forum with a guy who ran or owned a nail factory um he really made nails his family had made nails for years and he taught me so much about what happens when you put a nail near marble what it can hold together what it can not that you really use nails to hold marble together but but that you know these materials are in roman in in roman buildings up against each other a lot and and why that matters and what happens and what the potential of a nail is and i left that day and thought that was really fun i hope he had as much fun as i did yeah i learned so many great things um from from my clients yeah, well, that's great. Something like, like people just pe- people with a need for high cognition coming there, and then yeah. like, and then I've done all this thinking about this thing, and you're right. That's really cool. And then so doing all this in Rome, and then you come to Atlanta, which is in many ways kind of the total opposite. It's like we yeah. it's very thin. We've kind of I don't know how much we actually have wiped out our history. We talk about having wiped out our right. history, and um, so that was just a job. You came here blindly to Atlanta, roughly blindly. Yeah. 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 So. And that was 2000, that was post-Olympics. Yeah, it was 2010. Yeah, so some people draw a line there, that there's right. a difference before that. And then, so um, how much of a culture shock was that coming from Rome and trying to get a taxi when you get off the plane in Atlanta? It was a little like cutting my legs off. Um, yeah, I yeah, felt it pretty yeah. intensely for a couple of years. It can, yeah. But it, 
it was a new adventure. And I had always been very interested in design in Italy. Mm-hmm. And so design seemed a natural fit. And I really rapidly came to think of design as being a lot like archaeology. Yeah. Um, in that, especially, you know, the design that we call human-centered design these days. Human-centered design, which would be kind of, we'll give a definition of that, can you? Would be the kind of design that uses the design thinking process to solve problems. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's something I consider kind of um, a particularly modern, like capital M, the modernists who, who go back to the Bauhaus and they're like, we're going to design this around manufacturing processes and or what we can afford were the Eames kind of the most for the best, the best for the most for the least. Kind of ethos is in there, ideas of like, we're not just making pretty things, we're solving problems. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And well, who the problems we're solving for would be people in this case. So that's why you said right. human-centered right. design. Right. Cool. Um, yeah, so I am still kind of stuck on this image of like, like in having been to Rome a couple times and Atlanta, it's, the, the, the fact they're both called cities is kind of almost stretches the definition of the word city to the point of meaninglessness. You're they're like, they're wildly different animals. Wildly different animals. And you said you got your legs cut off, and I thought, but you got a driver's license, too. <laughs> well, I had one of those. Yeah. But um, I, I think one of my reactions to that, and I'm still living this reaction, was to try to construct for myself an existence here that at least in – some of the elemental ways reflects my existence in Rome. And obviously, they're never the same. The texture right. of the city is wildly different, but I live a mile from Moda, so I walk to work most days, including today when it rained. Yeah. Um, I, I try to use my neighborhood as a neighborhood, uh, and I know a lot of people in Atlanta do that. But it's important to me to, to feel like the fabric of the city around me is familiar and I'm not just driving through space that your part of your life is somehow invested in the streets around you yeah which absolutely is, is that southern European Mediterranean style of life it's about having your life out there and I think I had I the opportunity to live in France for a while mm-hmm. and after living in America you have that sharp contrast you really can say oh there's lots of things about this I like and you I've done a similar thing and I think a lot of people in Atlanta and that's causing Atlanta to begin to change culturally I want to bring some of that to Atlanta. Right. Like, I know I can't not have a car, but at least I want to be able to not have to drive someplace if I don't want to. Yeah, exactly. I want to have the option to walk. And driving in particular, you're like, God, this is a lot of work. It is. It's tiring. You're driving a thousand pound death machine. Like, you got to stay focused while you're. And it's boring at the same time. Really boring. (laughs) Yes. So, yeah, so you came to Atlanta to work for. Moda. Was it called Moda at the time? Or was it was. Close? It was downtown, of course. It was before we moved to Midtown. Mm-hmm. You were there. Were you there when the Breuer show was? I got to Atlanta just as the Breuer show was ending, so I really missed the fun of the Breuer show. Okay, because that was my introduction to it. I was working with the Young Architects Forum, mm-hmm. and that was a partnership. Um, so yada, 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 you are here for a while, and you work your way up to executive director at Moda, and that's been how many years now? Almost two. Okay. Um, that's a shorter time than I thought for some reason. I was associate director for two years, so I've been yeah. around a while. Well, yeah. And we did a show here for Emerging Voices while you were here. Right. 
which was um, an incredible amount of work to make Ryan and Tristan do. As, as <laughs> but we got them to do it. <laughs> we did. Here, we've given you an award. Now, now make us something. Right. Yeah. Uh, so talk a little bit about, about MODA and its mission and why it's here in Atlanta and what makes it unique. I mean, so... Moda has a long history. Uh, it was we're celebrating 25 years this year. Mm -hmm. But when it was founded, it was founded as the Atlanta International Museum of Art and Design. It's a great name. It's a name. It's a mouthful. Yeah. And it's it's the museum's primary focus when it was founded, and it was founded almost ad hoc, I think, by people who wanted they they recognized that Atlanta 25 years ago was becoming increasingly diverse yeah and they wanted to put on exhibitions and fill a hole they saw in Atlanta's cu cultural offerings that addressed this increasing diversity yeah and they began to do that uh -huh. um, and the exhibitions I think moved around for a while as much as I've been able to work out the very early history it wasn't really a home for Moda yeah, okay, for a long yeah, time yeah. Um, they had trouble building a consensus or a constituency around the museum. Right. So what they found is that when they put up a Danish show, a lot of people interested in Danish modern furniture. Not Jellyfield Donuts. Came. No, not Jellyfield Donuts. Um, came to the show. But those same people maybe did not come to the show about Japanese culture or art or right, design. Right, right, right. And I'm not sure that would happen in Atlanta anymore. I think we have... I hope we have a broader view. I hope mm -hmm. our understanding of, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how much we've changed or haven't changed, honestly. No, 25 years ago seemed to be a time when culture was taking off. Art papers got started and somebody was, Meryl Elam, who's an architect, yeah. put together an art papers and it really was a folder of art yeah. paper. And so now it's a magazine. So right, it's grown sure. like Moda's grown. So. Yeah, so I, I think culture has changed in Atlanta. Um, but what eventually the board decided to do, they looked at, the exhibitions that had been most popular, and in the, and they found design um, had really appealed mm -hmm. to a lot of people. That there was not another organization in the city that was talking about design in terms of exhibitions much. Right, right. And that the design industry in Atlanta was growing, and so they changed in the '90s. They changed the museum to become the Museum of Design Atlanta, and at some point, it got a semi-permanent home downtown. Right, it was buried in all those Portman buildings. Exactly. Right, right. And Mr. Portman was great. He let us have free space for years and years. So well, that was great. You know, it's surprising, too. It looks like Portman companies, which I assume is John Portman with the city of Atlanta, were the two kind of earliest. Earliest. Yeah. I think the Gordon has grown a lot from that. But yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, then three and a half years ago, we had the opportunity to move here to Midtown. Mm -hmm. The board had been looking for years to take us out of downtown. It, it just wasn't really working. Um, it, we couldn't gather the audience we wanted. Right. People didn't love going downtown. Parking was difficult. And it was hard to see us. We didn't have any street visibility. Yeah, it was one of those, I mean, it was kind of buried in that Portman complex. Right. And it was really hard to find. Especially exactly. giving directions to somebody. Like, <laughs> we're on one of those buildings at all. So yeah, so right now you're right on the street. Right, so we're right across from the high. Um, we are here because Parkinson Will bought this building, right? Renovated us, yeah, and renovated it and offered us this this um, ground floor, and we moved. Um, and Moda has changed a lot again since the move. Mm -hmm. I think that when we moved here, 
we did not have a full understanding of what we wanted to be and what we wanted to contribute to the cultural community. Right. And the board and the staff together, especially in the past two and a half years or so, have done some very, very serious work thinking about that and and trying to figure that out. And as a result, we have a new mission, Mm -hmm. which is to spotlight design as being at the intersection of creativity and functionality. Yeah. Through exhibitions and through programs. And by my interpretation, uh, that means that creativity is great. Obviously, it's an important part of design. Functionality is important, too. And what we don't say anything about in our in our mission statement is aesthetics. And I don't think that rules out aesthetics in any way. And, of course, beautiful things are, are most often beautifully designed in some way. Right. But it, what it doesn't say is that we are here to admire the aesthetics of beautiful design. It says we are here to talk about how design is a convergence of creativity and functionality. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. We struggle with that at the ADC is how do you advocate for good design, um, defining design, mm-hmm. which I think you, you is a nice idea, way of saying it between creativity and functionality. It's like to create, and there's a kind of, I guess there's you could look at it as a sort of a mix of proportions. Some things are going to be more creative, but there's mm-hmm. always got to be that it's not just something you're going to buy and put on a wall. Unless, right. Unless maybe it says a Philippe Stark uh, juicer. But right. <laughs> well, even Philippe Stark says design just for the sake of design. He's changed his tune. Oh, he's so, changed his tune. Yeah. So, yeah. He used to it's design. over. I just want to make something that would be a beautiful wedding gift. If it actually works, who cares? Right. <laughs> so, um, so we have this new mission, and it, um, with it came a new vision that imag- imagines a world that is created by design as a process that can solve problems and make the world a better place. And what's happened as a result of having the new mission and new vision, particularly this year in 2014, is that our exhibitions and programs have changed because we respond to those things. Good. And so Some people don't respond to their mission statements. Exactly, so, yeah. <laughs> but we, we try to. Yeah. Um, and so our exhibitions have become very much about design as a problem-solving process and as a prop, as a process that really can make our world better. It's, well, it's a process, too, I think, that's fundamental to our world. You can't build something until you've decided what it is, and that means you've got to answer a bunch of questions, and sometimes that involves some really creative thinking because the prescribed method isn't going to work for a problem. If it's a new problem or if you want to do something new. Absolutely. So it's, and I noticed you had a bunch of middle schoolers in there. Yeah. Going through right now. Is understanding that that process is shaping the world that you then operate within and make decisions in. Particularly if we think about human-centered design and the fact that design responds to the needs of people, the best design responds to the needs of people. And, right. and we can think about that when we solve problems. And and doesn't mean all of us are going to build houses or we're going to plan cities or we're even you know going to craft the next iPhone. But I think that learning what is involved in the design process and how to ask the kinds of questions designers ask about problem solving... Yeah. Is, is crucial to us making our way in the world. I think there's, um, central to design, too, is kind of solving problems in place, not trying to abstract them and make them something that's easy to solve. Right. And I think in that way it relates to everybody. You're kind of, I've got this thing that doesn't quite mesh. And if you actually kind of think about it sometimes, well, the designer might have been thinking of it in terms of this user interface, and mm-hmm. that's not really what's happening, but that gives me a hint to how I could then solve right. it or go 
advocate for better design someplace else. I know what you guys are thinking about, but I think our community needs to. Exactly. And yeah. understanding that there aren't, all, there are very few universal solutions. Yeah. That you, every problem, no matter how similar they seem, probably needs to be thought about separately. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of times when we, a, a lot of bad design is simply applying designs that have been done without thinking how the context is different. And Right. Yeah. Well, that's, that's actually really great, and it's really really exciting to see uh, Moda going in this direction and, and looking at some of the different programs you have on your website. They all look really uh, intriguing and interesting. Well, the, you want to talk a little about the current program you have going now? Sure. Because that was actually, especially with the high school students, what you were talking about with them sounded really cool. Yeah, we, um, we have an exhibition up now that fits our mission and vision perfectly. It's called Inspiring Beauty, 50 Years of Ebony Fashion Fair. Right. And it's a traveling exhibition. So we are increasingly curating more and more of our own exhibitions, mm -hmm. but we can't do all of them uh, because we're a small staff. So we choose carefully mm -hmm. the traveling exhibitions that we bring in. This one came from the Chicago History Museum. And it is a fashion exhibition that tells the remarkable story of a woman whose name was Eunice Johnson. She and her husband, John Johnson, founded the Johnson Publishing Company in the 1940s. Mm -hmm. They published Ebony and Jet and lots of other periodicals aimed at an African-American population right. with the very specific mission of providing positive images of African-Americans in the media. And as an extension of that, Mrs. Johnson in the 1950s began to travel every year to Europe. She loved high fashion. Mm -hmm. She wanted to buy it. She wanted to wear it. She wanted to wear it. Um, but she also believed that uh, the way we look shapes who we are and who we are in the world. Yeah. And the way we present ourselves. And she believed that high fashion on the level that it was being done in Europe by Valentino and Yves Saint Laurent and, and other such people should be available to everyone. And it really wasn't available to many Americans in the 1950s and, and particularly not available to African Americans. Right, right. So, um, there's one, this interesting idea that like how you look affects. I think there's, um, just I've thought about this before and wanted to touch on it, creativity and functionality. And there's a function to the aesthetic of the clothes you're wearing. That absolutely. You dress for work in a way that tells people how to interact with you. And so in her thoughts with the African-American community, we're going to dress in a way that says who we are, which is sophisticated, successful, and people, we're not going to be dressing in a way that we're characterized often. Absolutely. And even if we maybe haven't achieved everything we want to achieve, I think the message was, we can dress for what we want to be. Yeah. Dress for and the, the way we want, want to be treated and, and the way we want to be understood. And that was, that was a big part of her message as well. I think it's interesting because it's something that many of us as Americans consciously reject. Yeah. We don't like the idea of being judged for the way we look. And we often go with a very minimalistic look, the gap. You know, <laughs> I mean, we, we, ha we tend towards homogeneity sometimes. Yeah, and that and functionality, kind of, and those kind of send messages. Also, I think that's kind of the the catch sure. all there. Like you're you're gonna ignore this, but you're also kind of conformist, or maybe better words, you're a solid citizen. If you you're just you're not flashy, you're not, mm -hmm. or you're trying to send the message that you don't care. This doesn't matter to you, right? Which I think is also common. That was not the message of the Ebony Fashion Fair at right. all. It's completely the opposite. Right. But we're we're burying the power of design, which makes it hard to talk about design in a culture where you're like. I don't really care how I dress. Like, no, you do care how you dress. 
obviously we all get have to get dressed in the morning and we all care. We all we all make a choice. Yeah. Like nobody's wearing nobody dresses like the five year old when they first get dressed. You ever seen an adult like in a tutu and boots? Right, These are my exactly. four favorite things. Well, Baton Bob. Well I mean he comes by a lot and he had on his fireman outfit the other day and that oh. was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well Bob's an exception. Exactly. He's really making a statement. Um, but Mrs. Johnson so, would yes. bring back um, high fashion every year, hundred to hundred and fifty garments, put them on a bus. They had a custom made Greyhound bus. Yeah. And with African American models and a crew, and they would visit at the very height of the Ebony Fashion Fair, hundred and eighty cities a year. Putting Ooh. on, yeah, putting on fashion shows for African American communities. Um, the fashion shows were organized by local groups. So here right. it was the Delta Sigma Theta sorority that organized the Ebony Fashion Fair for most of its years. Okay, that meant they sold the tickets, they got the venue, they got sponsors, and so on. Any money they raised above what it cost to put on the show, then went back into local charity here in Atlanta. Okay. And so yeah. over the years, the Ebony Fashion Fair raised $55 million across the nation. Most of it went to education. Wow. Well, that's, yeah. so that's, that's also sort of design and using the alibi of fashion right. to seduce you I mean, or, or the, the glass face on your iPad to seduce you to touch this thing and do this thing Yep. in order to achieve a functional goal. Another end, a really important another, one. Another Let's get some education. Important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's an amazing story that Mrs. Johnson really had this broad and complicated view of what bringing fashion to African American communities could do, and she did it for fifty years. So the fashion fair ended in two thousand and nine. Right. And she died at ninety three in two thousand and ten. So it was a huge part of a lot of people's lives and. At Moda, as we've been getting ready for it, this show for the past year and a half, it's been so amazing to go talk to people who, who went to the Ebony Fashion Fair every year. Mm -hmm. They say astounding things like, it was bigger than Easter in my family. Um, people got really dressed up. It was the social event of the year. Um, people also say very, very meaningful things like, I had no idea as an African-American that I could be beautiful until I went and saw those models in those clothes on the runway mm -hmm. because I didn't have a mirror that looked back at me and said, right. you, you can be beautiful. That was a big issue in, in fashion even into the 90s where African-Americans started becoming supermodels or, or Africans or their English and French descent too, which was... Yeah, I mean, and that's very recent hi history compared to a lot of this. It's so. recent history, and in fact, it's we had a big event last night, and um, a couple of the models from the Ebony Fashion Fair and one of the commentators and Stephen Burroughs, the designer, were here. Oh, cool! And the co we showed a film called Versailles '73 that was yet another amazing fashion show, and then we had a panel discussion afterwards, and it was very, very interesting because they all really expressed the belief that. In the 70s, and, and approximately the 70s, and into the 80s, fashion was much more diverse than it is now. That designers now have really ceased to use um, a diversity of models. Oh, or really? maybe there will be one or two or three really amazing supermodels of any color, and they appear everywhere, right. but the vast majority of, of models of color are not getting work. Okay. And that I, I just think that's interesting and doesn't necessarily mean we've 
manage to make any kind of permanent change. Well, yeah, sometimes that, I guess that happens where there's a change in the most visual area. Right. And then you to get into the numbers, you're like, well, it's still 95%. Right. Right. So that, that is, it seems counterintuitive, but it, in a way it seems possible. Sure. Once it's explained to you. So it's, and it's up till January. This is up till January 4th, mm-hmm. yes. And there is a, um, if people do come down and check it out, and they should, because it's really nicely staged, there's a, a great set of documents in the back that you're pointing out, which was one was really cool was her, her notes on the program. Yeah. Where she was not just tracking the items she wanted, but also making notes about how, how to stage a, an exhibit or a fashion show and how she would do it differently. Yeah, Mrs. Johnson went to all the big shows in Europe. So this is that particular um, document is a Oscar de la Renta show from 1974-75 with her her notes all over it. And then beyond that, of course, we tell the story of Mrs. Johnson. So for those who know the story, it's a great way to relive it. And for those who don't know the story, it's a really wonderful way to learn it. Um, but there are also 40 ensembles that were part of the Ebony Fashion Fair between 1964 and 2009, and they are beautiful. Um, Mrs. Johnson had bold, bold taste, which is one of the reasons European designers liked her a lot. Um, so I, it probably wouldn't have occurred to me to put a men's plaid, double-breasted, fully sequined suit on the runway, but Mrs. Johnson had no trouble with it. No, no, they are, um, uh, I was trying to think of the word. There's a certain um, just interestingness to see all the weird collection, because it's also just 50 years of fashion. So. Yeah, absolutely. So there are times that are much more flamboyant than others, and she does sure. it with both feet. Uh, and since I mentioned it, the, you have a high school, a middle school group going through here now, mm-hmm. and um, I think this speaks to your mission, too. You want to talk a little bit about what the students are doing while they're wandering around your... Sure. One of the ways that we've expanded a lot in the past year at Moda is education, and that can be anything from field trips coming in to teaching classes in our design bar to kids and adults. Mm -hmm. Um, We are part of the City of Atlanta's Cultural Experience Project this year, and what that means is that a lot of APS ninth graders have been... Uh, are being are coming to to the Moda Inspiring Beauty exhibition mm-hmm. um, with help from an individual grand tour and the city. Mm-hmm. And when they get here, we understand that fashion, high fashion especially, can be a little bit inaccessible. Yes. We're asking them to take a deep dive into high fashion and history at the same time to learn the story of Mrs. Johnson. Right. So in order to do that, and to think about what the story means on the whole, in order to do that, we've constructed a um, an exercise by which they play roles, and they're assigned a personality, someone from the 1950s who's attending the Ebony Fashion Fair right. and seeing these amazing garments and listening to the messages that are are um, or in the commentary that's going out as the fashion show is happening and then recording their reactions. And it's been a great way to get high schoolers or junior high schoolers to think about what it means to have an experience out of the ordinary, to try to take right. themselves backwards in time to and try that. to think about what this meant. Yeah, just to play that role. Just to try to put them in the headspace of what this these artifacts meant in the time. Mm-hmm. So it, yeah. kind of your PhD work coming back around of this is an object. What's the what's all this other stuff around Always, it? yes. <laughs> yes. So, um, and I just said that to wrap it up in a bow. So I think... <laughs> Way to go. Yeah. 
So we've gone from Texas to Rome to Atlanta to now. And uh, so thanks a lot for your, your time. And I think everybody should come and check out Moda. Cool. So My pleasure. Thanks, Nathan. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs>